Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're getting ready to go out. You want to get in the mood. There's a playlist for that. You move to the beat. You trip over the dog. You're not dancing anymore. You open the Medibank app and find a physio. We live in an on-demand world. And now your health insurance comes on demand too. Download the new Medibank app today. On 1116 SEN, this is the Flag Flyers for the American Australian Association, devoted to strengthening relations between the United States and Australia. Hello everyone and welcome to the Flag Flyers, the place where we profile and chat about all the Aussies flying the flag for us in the US of A. I'm Christopher Tyler and alongside me, finally, it's been a couple of weeks, Lucky Miller. Yes, Hello mate, I'm I back. barely recognised you. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, apparently there's, there's some undercurrent of tension in the uh, SEN world of SEN America with people trying to take my seat apparently according to Well if you want to rock up every every show then uh, you know your 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 spot's safe but you didn't uh, you didn't come on board for the last podcast we had, the one with Mark Allen, SEN's own Mark Allen. It was terrific by the way. If you hadn't had a listen to it, go back and have a listen to the chat that I had with uh, with Mark Allen a couple of weeks back. It was phenomenal. But Let's move on because this is a different week. You are here, which is terrific to see, and we have a very special guest in the studio to uh, continue on our Aussies in Profile series. It's going to be one of the last ones because the um, college football season starts in about a month's time, so we're going to start our preview shows very shortly for that. So this is going to be our last Aussies in Profile series, so we thought we'd finish it off with a little bit of a bang. Bring out the big guns. Bring out the big guns. So in the studio with us today is former Major League Baseballer and current Melbourne Aces GM, Justin Huber. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem, mate. We're very excited. And obviously, it's the off-season at the moment. You're quite busy with a lot of uh, Aces stuff at the moment. We'll get to that a little bit later on in the show. We kind of wanted to start off where your love for baseball started. So obviously, when you were a young tucker, you played a lot of baseball. How did the love for baseball start off for you? It was really luck more than anything. Um, I was a six-year-old walking through Knox City Shopping Centre. Uh, it was a my dad um, had migrated to Australia in the '60s um, from Switzerland originally, so he knew nothing about baseball, no background uh, in it at all. And Mum um, was from Wollongong. Um, up in New South Wales, so uh, she was from rugby territory. She didn't have anything to do with the sport either. So, you know, there we were walking through a shopping centre as a six-year-old and the local baseball club, Upway Furniture Gully, was was there in force handing out flyers. You know, who, who would have thought a simple flyer drop, um, you know, could um, could lead to a, a major league career. But um, that's how I got involved. My uh, my parents picked up a flyer and thought, you know, um, this is a new, um, you know, a new sport, new up-and-coming sport. It's it's like cricket, but it's got a lot more turns. You know, you get you know three, four at bats during the course of the game. You're in the field. You're moving positions. It's uh, it's it's over pretty quick too. Two, three hours. You you're done. You're not standing out on the field all day like cricket. So, um, yeah, they thought let's let's give this a try, and that's um, that's what I, where I got in. I got in as a t baller, a six year old t baller, and just absolutely fell in love with hitting a round ball with a round bat. Yeah, I was going to ask you how old were you when you started, but um, was there any ever competition for your sporting passion, or when she got uh, obviously six is quite a um, a young age, but also you know you just from that moment on that was your sport. You never experimented multi sport athlete. Yeah, I did, um, and I you know I played everything. I was um, 
Oh, I, was, I was right into cricket and footy like every other um, Aussie kid at the time. Um, but um, yeah, I look in tennis and golf and all those, you know, all the all the sports, all the bat and ball sports. Yeah, I was going to say my, all the ones that you hit in yeah, balls. Yeah, I loved footy. Like I loved it. Mum and dad um, didn't love the idea of me playing footy because, um, you know, again they were um, yeah they weren't from that background of sport plus you know high risk of injury and all those, all those things. So they were thrilled when I took up, you know, a, you know a bat and ball sport. So. Um, yeah, I did give it all a go. I loved it. Still, still love getting out on the golf course and having a hit. Love my surfing these days. I'm got picked that up, you know, mid-teens, you know, later in life, and um, yeah, I'm in love with that at the moment too. But um, yeah, baseball was always my first love. How popular was the sport of baseball at that stage? What was the landscape like, especially compared to these days? We're seeing a lot more people um, watching Major League games, and especially last year when we had the game of the SCG between the Diamondbacks and the Dodgers. What was the landscape of baseball like in Australia back then? Yeah, uh, probably in retrospect, looking back now... um, Probably more people are actually uh, aware at a at a you know major league baseball aware these days. I mean, um, at that time, you know, the only thing that only time you would ever come across baseball was at a local club level, and then from 1988 to 1999, there was um, the former Australian Baseball League, and at that time was you know the sport was one of the most rapid growing sports in Australia. Um, we had two teams in that old league, the Melbourne Monarchs and the, and the Waverley Reds. Um, so this was a, you know, a two, two team ABL, uh, town, which was, um, yeah, which was testament to the fact that there was a lot of interest and popularity at the time at a local level. Um, but there wasn't internet. There wasn't, um, you know, I remember dad used to tape the world series on, uh, SBS, like, come VHS. on, like, yeah, <laughs> come on at like 3am and I'd, uh, I'd rush home from school because I, you know, that was my only sort of time in the year where I'd get to, you know, actually watch some uh, major league games. But you know, now, so it's you only a, really knew the players through that then. That's it. I, yeah. I grew up. My heroes were my local ABL heroes. So yeah, I, right. I, you know, that, the Waverley Reds. That was my that was my big leagues watching. Uh, you know, guys like Matty Sheldon Collins and David Clarkson and um, uh, you know uh, all these all these guys that are local heroes now. You know, those those guys were were my big leaguers back then. Yeah, I was going to ask you about go, going back that far when it's I suppose the, this generation they can look up and we were just talking off air. There's 31 uh, Australians that have played Major League Baseball. It's it's much easier for a kid this day to to know that that pathway is possible because of the guys like yourself that have gone before it. When you were growing up, did you have aspirations to play you know major league baseball? And, and who were your role models in terms of um, you know you said you focused on the on the local guys, but uh, did you have faith that you could get to the top, or was that just not something in your mind at that stage? Yeah, I think it was a dream in every sense of the word, really. Um... Yeah, the only experience, as I said, was was through watching uh, the World Series once a year. I thought that was that was America at the, you know, that was baseball at the top of its, um, you know, at the, at the top of the game. So, I think probably um, my aspirations came around more so the idea of playing at the very top level, wherever that may be. Just so happened that the major leagues were, you know, were the pinnacle of the sport at the time, and still is um, at the moment. So, um, yeah, look, I. Um, I definitely had the dream of playing in the big leagues, but it didn't mean the same as it would to an Ameri- a kid growing up in 
America watching, you know, the greats of the game like George Brett and, you know, all these all these sort of guys. I, I, I didn't have that um, one person that I was like, I really want to be like like that person. Um, David Nielsen was a big inspiration. He was really – David Nielsen, Craig Shipley and, and Graham Lloyd, those guys were really the trailblazers of the sport in this country. If it wasn't for them actually making it um, – you know, opening the scouts' eyes to the talent pool that was in Australia and just – showing that it actually is possible for an Australian to grow up in an Australian baseball pathway and actually progress to play in the major leagues. Um, if it wasn't for those three guys, there, there just wouldn't be any uh, any pathway to the big leagues for Aussie kids these days. So so where along the line or what age were you when you sort of realised that uh, major league, because you got signed uh, just out of high school around that time, that you go, okay, you know, I'm on track or I potentially can make this level? Because without having those benchmark guys that have gone before you, how did you know roughly where you sat? There was no one to compare directly against, whereas now the kids can go, oh, so Justin Huber you know, uh, got signed out of, uh, out of high school and Josh Spence was playing in this state team at this age and he went on to play you know, for Arizona State and, and all that sort of stuff. How did you sort of figure out where you sat? Yeah, it was probably more the... Um the national championships and the and the state teams that I did play on, you know, if you're playing on your team and you're the best in your in your team or you're one of the best couple of players on your team, you just you want to aspire to be that on every team that you play on. It's no different once you get into the professional system. Um, to get to the big leagues, you've got to be the best in the minor leagues as well, and there's six of those teams. So you got to at some point you've got to be the best on all of those six teams in the minor leagues before you get to the big leagues. Um, but um, yeah, I think once I started to go away on national teams and travel internationally and start to see the talent pool around the world, I started to realise I wasn't that far off. Like, yeah, okay, I wasn't up to you know, uh, you know some of these some of these teams and some of these the calibre athletes that you were competing against was extreme. Like, I remember going to an under eighteen championship in Edmonton. Um, and we, as a 17-year-old, Jeremy Bonderman was throwing 95 miles an hour, and he ended up being one of Detroit's, you know, all-star <laughs> pitchers. He's pitching against the Australian team in the under-18s in Edmonton, you know, <laughs> handful of years before throwing 95 miles an hour, just blowing Jesus. guys' doors off. You know, it was it wasn't even close. So, I did realise that, um, you know, there were some really amazing athletes out there at, at the same level. Uh, but on a whole, I didn't feel like I was that far off. So that gave me a bit of a bit of energy and and and, and confidence boost. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, entering pro ball, um, you know, you did actually get into playing against seniors quite early in Australia. You know, at sixteen, you're playing on you know fifteen, sixteen, you're playing on senior teams. So you actually are competing against men. So I, I do remember going over the states, not being as overwhelmed as you would expect an eighteen year old kid essentially going into pro ball and competing against grown men because I had had that experience of, of competing against grown-ups um, earlier on. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what uh, did you feel so maybe it was a disadvantage when you went over or you're comparing yourself against international kids and saying, well, if I was actually in their system, I might have actually, you know, when you collectively in a more talented group, you sort of rise to the occasion a little bit more. But it's interesting that last comment you uh, made about playing with men. Mm. Uh, we've had Trav Blackley and um, Craig Shipley both on the show and mentioned that specific point is that the reason why I think Aussies can do it is not because of the collective talent pool being so large. It's just that the really good young kids are playing against men. Mm. So did, was that, that factor of that sort of compensated for the lack of 
you know large talent pool at, the, at a pretty high level? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's um, you see it um, similarly in in um, you know in some other sports like tennis. You know, tennis is a really really good example. You know, you don't play in age groups in tennis. You actually, you play in you know based on your talent level. Um, so if you're really good, you're going to play against a whole lot of much better players a lot a lot sooner and a lot a lot earlier so um you know there's a bit of correlation there in, in baseball is that you know we actually do because non-contact we can actually put players up against some better age groups and it, it is a good point it's a probably an environmental factor that's in in our advantage to some degree um you know whereas you know in the u.s you're playing high school baseball you're not playing against men but you're playing against some pretty competitive high school players so some of those players that are going into pro ball um as 18 year olds you know they're still a little bit edgy over over competing against those sort of age and experience levels of those sorts of players was the college path ever an option for you? We mentioned before how you went pretty much straight from high school and got signed on with the Mets in, uh, I think, 2000 it was. Did you ever have in your mind the, um, the the fact that you wanted to go to college? Was that ever an option? Yeah, definitely. Had I have not signed um, with the Mets, I, I probably would have 100% gone to college. Um, I you know, at the time, I had a few offers. You know, the Mets, but also had the Do- uh, the Dodgers and the the Colorado Rockies, pretty keen to get me into their system. So, um, probably halfway through, I um, uh, through my last year of high school, I sort of figured out that you know it was going to be a pro ball um, opportunity. Um, so, you know, college sort of started to go out of my mind, but. Um, I really am a massive advocate for college, the college pathway. It's such an awesome system. You know, you you go in, you're getting a degree, you're playing the sport you love every day, and you're coming out um, on the other side. Whether you do enter professional baseball or whether you don't, you're, you're leaving with something. And you can see guys like Josh Spence. I mean, he was a third-round pick, our highest ever pick um, as an Australian, got to the major leagues and came out with a degree on the other side as well. Now he's, um, you know, he's looking at doing things in the college system Again, so it's, it is it is a really really good pathway, and um, we're certainly seeing some kids who don't have um, professional baseball opportunities. Um, you know, at the outset, um, they're not signing as eighteen or nineteen year olds, going over to college, spending four years in a program, and coming out and signing pro, pro contracts. So it's a it's a really good opportunity for those kids that aren't quite physically ready to go away, still play at a really high level, get in a great program, get some education. Um, best case scenario, you wind up in pro ball. Worst case scenario, you come back to Australia, play in the Australian Baseball League. You got a degree, and you're going into um, you know going into your career pathway. Mm. So it sounds like I guess if knowing what you knew now back then, it sounds like if you had your time again, you probably would have gone to college. Would that be the case? Uh, yeah, I, I probably would have to be to be honest, because um, I reckon uh, one of the big parts of the college system is uh, you know there's so many colleges. And most colleges typically don't have scouts because they don't have the you know the resources and the budget to to do that. Um, so a lot of it is who you know, um, and you're pulling in favors, contacts, um, trying to get to recruiters um, yourself, or going through uh, you know people that are moonlighting as um, you know college uh, you know college placement um, consultants or whatever. <laughs> so so um, yeah, look, I I I, I don't. Um, you know, you know, at the time, they just—I didn't have those networks. But um, 
you know, to get into a big four-year school as an 18-year-old, um, you know, and play in some of these massive programs, uh, you know, there's a case to say you might have been better off doing that and um, and, and bumping your, uh, you know, your market value up in the in the draft. So was that so? That was your decision-making process when you were coming out of high school. Was that there was no. Because there was a lack of scouting potential out here or in terms of being able to properly identify you as a legit four-year player, because obviously if you sign within a pro rank, you're obviously good enough, that you just thought that the, the risk was it would be safe for you to go into the pro ranks as opposed to potentially end up at a low Division One school that didn't meet your needs athletically. Yeah, def- definitely. I mean, you know that if a team's prepared to pay you a signing bonus in professional baseball, uh, put you in the pro, pro system and develop you, you know they're making an investment with you. Um, but you could go to a college who doesn't know you. You've gone in through a friend of a friend. You're at some junior college somewhere in Texas that no one knows you. And you could be redshirting, sitting on the bench behind you know, three other guys that, um, that have got to play ahead of you. So um, it was a bit of a risk. And reward, and, and it was hard to turn back uh, an opportunity with the Mets, where they were willing to say, "Hey, look, we believe in you. We're going to cultivate you. We've got a system in place. We're, we're ready to go." So, that at the time was more my ignorance, um, more than my family's ignorance, rather than one system's better, 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 or worse than the other. At the time, I was making a decision based on what was in front of me, and yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd probably nine times out of ten, I would have made the same decision in the same circumstances, but. A little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit smarter. I probably uh, might have done something different. Yeah, because I'm curious. Now that you're the GM of the Aces and you hold such an influential position in, I suppose, the development of uh, the nation's ba- um, basketball baseball prospects, would your advice be, you know, as long, you know, do we need to learn how to facilitate our junior talent into the right fit for kids in a college program is that is that the priority as opposed to just letting the top tier one signing a pro contract and letting the other ones just figure themselves out either back here or maybe going to a junior college is does there need to be a better infrastructure for transitioning our kids you know as many of them as possible into that development system in the college ranks yeah look i think it's uh, case by case obviously because some uh, some circumstances i would um i would very much advocate against um uh, some kids going to going to college, um, uh, and, and others the the opposite. But um, I think probably the biggest takeout for us is that um, there are so many colleges. Right? There's yeah. literally, if you're a you know a second player in their under eighteen local leagues here, you could still find a college where you could play on the team. And there's that many colleges with that many programs, with that many coaches, with that many opportunities that um, it's more a personal um, question of your personal development um, and career aspirations. If, if you're a kid who's coming out, of, um, coming out of high school and you want to pursue an elite pathway and you're not getting knocks on the door from scouts wanting to sign you into professional programs, you should go to college. That That is 100%. And there's a college out there that will take you no matter, you know, how good or, you know, where you fit into the elite pathway, whether you've never made a state team before in your life, um, whether you're, you know, you're not even making your local club club firsts, you will, there will still be a college that out there that'd be willing to put you in the program and you'd get game time and you'd have, you know, four years of developing and you'd come away with a degree. So that's probably the major point of difference is that, you know, 15 years ago when I started this process, the kids going to college were, 
you know, the the best kids were signing, and and the next sort of tier were going to college, and that was it. Okay. Uh, and now, really, what we're seeing is it's not that second tier of kids. It's 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 all those kids that are really got that aspiration have got opportunities to go to college and should and should be following that because who knows? You know, you're 18 year old um, years old. Who knows if you're going to be a you know a, a local um, you know prospect in a, in a couple of years' time with a bit of development, a bit of dedicated training. Does being an international player at all help or hinder the situation at all? Do you think, or doesn't it really matter where you're from? Because it seems nowadays they're more looking uh, overseas for talent. Do you think it helps or not really? Well, more than 50% of the major leagues is uh, foreign-born. Yeah, so, um, but, but that's a big skewed towards the, you know, the South Cuban, American yeah, countries, South yeah. Americans and things like that. So True, um, but it is, it is great in that way. Like, I mean, I've played in Japan as well where you're only allowed four imported players on that team. Jeez. So, so um, they restrict the amount of foreigners on the team, whereas the major leagues is just it's if open. If you're good, it's, you're in. It's a true... You know, top level team. They don't. They don't. Um, you know, they don't restrict where you were born. So, um, in, in that regard, um, you know, I, I, I really, I think it's, I think it's fascinating that um, that there are still so, given how many countries are playing. I think it's. I mean, it, it's a testament to how strong baseball still is in in the U.S. Uh, that that you know, nearly fifty percent of the major leagues are, are U.S. born. Um, but yeah, it is. It is most definitely a multicultural league. You said just before there's there's some situations for some players which you advocate against not going to college. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Yeah, look, uh, at times there there'll be a, a player who's so talented at a young age, and a major league team's willing to throw the kinds of money at them to get them into their system that it would be. Uh, yeah, it, it it would be not right to um to the to cost give benefit, advice. Yeah. yeah, to give advice against taking on a contract like that because um you know the kinds of money that they throw around can set you up for later in life. Also, um, the kinds of money that they can throw at young players can guarantee that they're going to give them the kinds of development period. Um, you know, at a young age, uh, guarantee the kind of uh, development period that you would need as, a, as an Australian player. And they guarantee that, well, I know in some instances, there was a, a, a Melbourne kid recently that signed with the Yankees organisation. Yep. That I, I, I'm not sure if it was actually in this article, or maybe I just heard this somewhere else, that they've also guaranteed that they'll pay for his education anyway. Yep. So it's, it's you don't get that college experience, yep. but you don't miss out on the education. Yeah, most definitely. And that's a big part of um, the decision-making process is, you know, okay, you're going to get some money to go play a game that you love and they're going to pay for your college if they happen to release you, you know, at the end of the experience. So it really is a hard hard one to turn down. Um, but, um, yeah, that that would probably be the only circumstances where I'd say, you know, a pro, uh, a pro opportunity would, uh, would be more advantageous than going down the college route. So you signed up with the Mets in the year 2000. They scouted you as an international player. What was that whole scouting process like, and how did they first get in contact with you? And was there much communication before they actually signed you? What was that process like? Yeah, um, I started getting seen by scouts um, around the age of 16 uh, at national championships. Um, the Like I said, those guys that pre preceded me, 
uh, really set the scene for um, you know searching the talent pool in a, in, a, in Australia. Um, so a lot of teams started to um, employ what they call bird dogs. Mm. Um, so scouts that that live locally who report back to the major league teams in the US. So. Um, Melbourne had a New York Mets-based scout. Um, his name was James Waddell. Um, and he started having a look at me around the age of 16. And, and um, over the years, there was um, uh, he's, he watched my development and was, was keenly interested in um, getting uh, the New York Mets uh, cross-checker at the time, um, uh, Fred LaDuca, out to, um, to, um, to actually see me play at a national championship. And that national championship was in Perth in um, in uh, 1999. 1999. <laughs> long, <laughs> long time, time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, time flies, mate. Yeah. So um, yeah, he he came out to watch me play, and they liked what they saw. So about the um, you know about the you know the the end of January in that in in 2000, um, you know James started talking with my family. I was pretty removed from the situation because. You know, I was underage. They weren't actually allowed to talk directly to me. They were talking to my um, to my parents, and um, and so that was how that process all took place. And you know, over the coming months, we sort of um, you know we discussed um, what that opportunity looked like. And there was a couple other players, as I said before, uh, the Dodgers and the Rockies were involved in the uh, at, at that time as well. But um, yeah, I look back and think uh, how we fumbled our way through that whole process. My uh, my dad, who had no idea about any, you know, any of the system, none of us knew anything. So we were we were calling other families who had been through it at the time and trying to get a little bit of advice about what to expect. Was it stressful on them at all? Or not uh, really? Uh, Did they enjoy yeah, the process? It was all just such an adventure at yeah. the time, you know. It was, um, it, yeah, it was it was an amazing experience when I look back on it. You know, we were, you, what we were about to embark on, both me personally and us as a family, um, it really was the you know the fledgling start of um, what was ended up being you know uh, a, a lifestyle and a, and a lifetime of experiences through professional baseball. So at the time we had a pretty nonchalant, cavalier attitude in a lot of ways. That's but, awesome. Uh, but you know we. Uh, we Aussied our way through it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask for directions. Yeah, coin that phrase. Aussied your way through it. I think we'll keep that. But in terms of these, um, these the Melbourne-based Mets uh, scout that you mentioned, are they uh, are they more just like diehard Mets fans that are trying to contribute to the organisation, or are they actually employed? Because it sounds like it's quite an extensive setup there that you've got a Melbourne-based. Uh, scout, and then they have a cross checker. Like they've got quite an intricate system, by the sounds of things. Yeah, definitely. It's it's yeah, they are empl- employees, not full time guys. The bird dog guys aren't full time, but um, yeah, you you don't really need to be in Australia. There's enough. Uh, there's there's only so many kids that you that 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 are assignable um, at that age that you can cover them pretty comfortably in a national championship and you know a few flights around Australia each year. So most of them. Um, a part time. We have a few. We're lucky in Australia. We have a few um, scouts that started off as Berg dog, dog scouts and actually ended up being, um, you know, international um, full time international scouts like uh, John Diebel and um, John Diebel and and Phil Dale uh, and a number of others actually work full time as scouts. So they they're up in Asia. Um, John Diebel was really famous in securing the um, uh, Dice K and Matsuzaka. 
um, deal with the Boston Red Sox. So um, yeah, he was right in that. That was like a you know an eighty million dollar um, you know contract that that was uh, that, that 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 resulted in. So um, yeah, it was it, some of some of our um, our scouts like our coaches and like our players have an actual pathway through through professional baseball. So uh, that's what's really um, exciting about this league as well is that you're not just seeing players progress through the ranks. You're seeing you know you're seeing um, Umpires. We Australia just had an umpire make it to the to the big leagues. Um, really, recently. really, yeah. Um, we didn't get a hold of that. Yeah, yeah. We we've had uh, we've had players get through to the big leagues. We've had coaches get through to the big leagues. You know, and hopefully um, in time we've got um, some front office staff um, that are starting to progress through to the big leagues as well. Christy Laplante, our um, assistant general manager, did an internship with the Aces in 2011, and she was um, working as uh, as an intern. Uh, with the um, Cincinnati Reds oh, last wow. year in the big leagues. So, yeah, there is a pretty legit pathway. Because I know that um, uh, uh, as from a sports science perspective, uh, a lot of the Australian uh, – there's a lot of Australian sports scientists in the major codes over there, namely NFL and NBA. Uh, I'm, I, I'm sure that they'd somewhere be in the major league baseball organisations. Mainly, I think it's to do with uh, the, the, the load um, – tracking with the catapult systems because we're the experts in it because it got developed in Australia. But um, Craig Shipley, uh, obviously, is, as assistant GM, his role is mainly international scouting. Yeah. So, you know, from that perspective, he obviously uh, know the Australian model pretty inside and out. Is that, is that an advantage for the Diamondbacks in any way or is it everyone's got it covered anyway? Yeah. Uh, look, there's, there's some things that Major League Baseball do that are – Absolutely cutting edge. You know, like we talked about scouting. Like, Stats cast. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, That's awesome. You know, the AFL are working quite closely with, um, uh, you know, with Major League Baseball teams on this sort of uh, this sort of thing, and um, and so yeah, they. I mean, they've essentially got. Um, more than 200 countries in in the world that play baseball. There's over 65 million people that recognise themselves as as baseball players worldwide, and there's only one major league. So that that that's a real point of difference from other codes like soccer. You know, you can play high level pro, pro soccer. Um, England, Spain, Germany, remember, Italy. Yeah, I remember playing in uh, San Diego, and my, my plumber came up to you know undo my uh, you know fix my sink, and he was saying, "Oh yeah, I played pro soccer in uh, in in Mexico, and I, I was making three hundred grand a year." So what? you know, wow. <laughs> and he was fixing my sink. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know so um, you know you can go play in pro leagues all over the world, but. You know, in baseball, you got one league, and you got sixty-five million people that, you, that, that are funneling into that league. So, pro teams have had to scout, you know, worldwide for a, for a long time, and um, you know, it, it really is a true international competition. What was it like uh, going over as an eighteen-year-old into the Big Apple? Obviously, the Mets being, you know, big market. You know, it's not like you're going into you know a small city sort of environment. Um, what was that like from a just a life experience. Yeah, it was a different beast. Um, my first year, two thousand and one, um, the uh, the Dodgers. So the Dodgers moved out of Brooklyn uh, in nineteen fifty six, um, and so from from then until two thousand and one, there had ne- there hadn't been base pro baseball in Brooklyn. 
um, until 2001 when the Mets put a farm team back there called the Brooklyn Cyclones. Oh, that's the stadium there. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Next to the uh, – right in Coney Island there. NYU play there now. Exactly. Yeah. Near Nathan's Hot Dogs, near the Cyclone, um, you know, uh, roller coaster, all that, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. So um, anyway, they put a team back down there, and um, and that was my first season in the States. Oh, cool. So – I um I I started out in um in rookie ball in Kingsport Tennessee and um I had a really really great season and got called up to um I got called up to Brooklyn at the at the end of the season so I went up went up to Brooklyn we were about to go into the playoffs um um against Staten the Staten Island Yankees actually we we ended up playing the first game against the Staten Island Yankees and um and uh, the next day uh, so we. You know, we we were going to smash them like we were we were right right into it right. We were, there was no doubt. We, and we were caught, drawing big crowds. It was the first year that they'd been back in Brooklyn, so the buzz was just absolutely incredible. And there was a lot of Mets Cyclones, um, you know, alignment. You know, um, um, uh, uh, Edgardo Alfonso um, was a big time first uh, third baseman for the Mets at the time. And his brother was our team manager, so there was yeah there was really quite a lot of alignment with what the Mets were doing at the time. So we we're playing Staten Island in the playoffs, and um, and uh, it was um, on September tenth we beat them. Mm. September eleventh we had an off day, and um, I was you know in my hotel room as a nineteen year old at the time. Um, Whereabouts was that? That was we were in Brooklyn. Um, so. September 11th, 2001, um, pretty significant date on the, on the world calendar, um, I awoke to um, my roommate shaking me. He said, something's happened at the World Trade Center. Um, so I get up and, we, you know, TV's, TV's on and, um, you know, the second plane had just, just hit. So we ran up the stairs to the top of the hotel and actually watched the Trade Center fall down. Wow. You uh, saw from, that live? Yeah, from, our, from, our, from our hotel room. <laughs> so, what were you feeling um, at the time? I were didn't you know scared? what was going on. I had, had no confused? idea what was going on. I yeah. like didn't want to believe that it was a terrorist attack. Like when when the first plane hit, we were like, Oh, that's something must have gone wrong yeah. with the navigation. Like how you know, you know something something horrible. You don't believe happened. the worst, no, yeah. Yeah, I did. I was absolutely thinking, Oh, that just must have been a really unfortunate mishap. Um and then when the second one hit, it was like, oh, something's happened and then the, the you know, the the coverage of it was just non stop. There was you know the phone lines. You know, completely jammed up. Couldn't call out. I couldn't call it. I couldn't call oh, home wow. for three days. Oh, oh wow! So the the um, we were we were staying right next to LaGuardia Airport. All the planes um, grounded. Grounded. Um, we couldn't get out. Um, they called off the season. Um, yeah, like I said, I couldn't couldn't call home. Not yeah, absolutely zero communication for three days. Um, finally. Um, you know the team made a made a call that you know the season's going to be off and we should really get uh, everybody out of here. So um, they they rented us all cars and the whole team got into um, got into these rental cars and drove back down to Florida where our spring training complex was in in Port St. Lucie and um, uh, we f- we went straight into our um, end of season training camp. So um, yeah, ex- uh, at the end of the season, so it was. 
one of the most crazy experiences of my life. But it wasn't until much, much later, like months later, that I had any real concept of uh, how of big what, that really was. What, what went on? Like it was at the time, it was just yeah, too crazy, too wild to to even put into words. Did did it shake you, like knowing that you were in the Mets organization and you'd have to go back to New York? Um, shake me. I mean, I was just so young and naive. Like, I mean, it was just you know, I grew up in Emerald in the Dandenongs. You know, like you know, you might bump across some drunken idiot on the road <laughs> sometimes. Sometime. You grew up in Emerald. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so I was just I was just so young and naive. Like I didn't really. I just. Like I, like I said before, I just expected the best at every situation. I wouldn't wouldn't think that anybody would ever be out there to try to do these sorts of things. So I just didn't have any real concept of what was going on at the time. So, um, and I was still really, um, you know, naive when I went back to New York. It was, yeah, it was a, it was a different time. How long did it take to kind of recover that sense of normality that you would have had before the bombing, before the um, attacks? Um, well. I don't think you ever really came, got back to normality because after that, your whole way of life in America was completely different. Like you're talking the level of security to get through an airport, um, like to get home to Australia, I had to. I was going. I was going through security with military men standing there with fully loaded assault rifles. You know, in the airport, that's something I've never ever experienced. Um, you know, before or after, like that was completely, you know, mind blowing. That the the level of security that they were going to at the time, and 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 still to this day, there's okay, anybody that's travelled to America since nine eleven will testify to the fact that, um, you know, public security is absolutely at the forefront of everybody's mind over there. In fact, you know, American um, players and friends of mine that come and visit laugh at how nonchalant we are here at the at the airports and public spaces and how lucky we are. Yeah, even when I I go over now, like it, you you almost become paranoid about accidentally forgetting that you've you might have left like a, a deodorant can yeah, in your bag that's or whatever. A big one. And I actually thought I you actually allowed it. And I at a certain certain um, size, yeah, two hundred mils. Or something. But once I went through security, forgot that I did, I had in there, thought I wasn't meant to, and like just bailed it out in the bathrooms because I was just paranoid. And this is like fifteen years after, fourteen years after yeah. all these incidents. So it's like they set, yeah, it's just a totally different feel there in terms of just perception. Yeah. So after that happened, that was after your first season with the Mets organization. You spent another three years yeah. with the Mets. What was that like from a development perspective and, and for your own game? How did you enjoy? Playing um, in the minor leagues and and just kind of going through the the system. Yeah, well, the Mets were um, oh, they were just like rock stars, you know. Like their all their all their minor league coaches were ex nineteen eighty six um, World Series vets, like um, you know Howard Johnson and uh, Tim Tuffle and Gary Carter was there and uh, Bobby Ojeda and you know Bob Stanley who actually played for the. Red Sox, he was there. Mookie Wilson was coaching in the big leagues, you know. Like it was just it was nineteen eighty six all star hour in the in the Mets minor leagues and it was so cool. Like it was really, really fun to be around these guys who had, you know, had not only played in New York but thrived in New York and it was you know, uh, the, Met, the Mets are always the underdogs. They're the working class, blue collar. You know, you, you know, Yankees are sort of the, you know, the the crosstown rivals. But they're, 
you know everybody's a Yankees fan. You you got to be you got to be you got to have authentic authenticity and grit to be a Mets fan. You know, <laughs> um, so that was that was really cool. I loved I loved the New York Mets. I loved their system. Um, it was really fun playing there. I you know we played the towns that we played in. Um, you know uh, Kingsport, Brooklyn. Um, uh, they had a team in Capital City um, in South Carolina. Um, you know, uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida, uh, Binghamton, New York, uh, and then I finished in Norfolk where I got traded to um, uh, Kansas City in 2004. But, um, you know, Norfolk, Virginia is a, as a, as a 20 year old's um, not a bad place, a 21 year old's not a bad place either. So you obviously see a lot of places throughout uh, your, your career over, over in the States. Is there a place that you can kind of relate to the most or the place that you enjoyed the most? And can you actually enjoy these places or is it? Kind of the thing where you're so focused on your goal that you don't have any spare time to really worry about what's going on around you. Yeah, it's a bit of that. Um, yeah, you, you get used to seeing the inside of ballparks and hotel rooms. Um, but I, I did have a, 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 some really close friends in Denver who I, um, you know, who I'd always go and see. It was sort of my my home away from home. So I always fly in and out of Denver and visit with them. You know, before or after the season or on the odd time I snuck up there on an All Star break and things like that. Um, but um, yeah, Denver was a great place. Love San Francisco. Could have finished my career happily in San Diego. Absolutely loved San Diego, Chicago, New York. You know, they're, they're all they're all really really great cities, and you bump into a lot of Aussies in those sorts of places yeah. um, as well. Um, but San Diego, San Diego probably topped it for me in terms of a living in baseball and lifestyle experience. I mean, I was living in the Gaslamp uh, district right behind Petco Ballpark. I just the, went there. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was living in the apartment building behind right field so I could actually look out of my apartment into the stadium I could really? see when the groundskeeper was getting the field ready for batting practice <laughs> they'd wow. charge you more for that now <laughs> and I have to thank Josh yeah. Spence for my ticket too that was pretty good like yeah, yeah that was pretty cool I was just yeah. I was going to ask you in terms of obviously which which team do you identify as um do, do you have a favorite because obviously the Mets are the ones that signed you gave you the opportunity yep. the Royals are the ones where you got your start but the Padres were the one where you got your first home run. Like, yeah. which do, do you have any bias towards anything, or you just love them all? Oh no, I, I, I have, I have great memories from all all those teams, and um, you know, I, I do, th- you know, thank them incredibly for the opportunities that they did give me. I mean, you, you get a lot of, you come across a lot of salty, sour. Um, disgruntled players who you know who, who leave organisations and go. I know I was hard done by. I was never that. I you know I left saying you know what I gave it everything that I got. You know, I, I understand no hard feelings. It's a business. You know we parted companies for for a reason. And um, yeah, I'm I'm happy to have um, put on the jersey and 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 did my best while uh, while the time was there. I mean, yeah, it was um, it was definitely uh, like I said, there was a couple of places where I could have happily just uh, you know posted up and stayed there for the rest of my my time. But um, you know those opportunities all led to other opportunities and and where I am now. So you can't really look back with too much negativity. See, I feel like a lot. Of people would have got broken down by the system over the years, but it sounds like that you've got through it quite easily. It seems like that you got through it without a hitch. Was there a certain mindset that you went into each of your stops and just got that got you through it? Uh, I think early early is harder than later because early you don't really understand the system, right? So 
Um, you're chasing this unicorn up the, <laughs> you know, up the up the tree, and you got it. And, the pot of gold at the yeah, end of the rainbow, exactly. And you know, early, very early on, you know, eighteen, nineteen year old years old, you don't understand that in order to have a long career in the big leagues, you've got to be at this for like you know more than ten years. You know, you got to be you got to be chasing this dream for a, for a long time. So. You know, your first year you go over there and it's just an adventure. It's actually your easiest year in many ways because everything's new, you know, all the faces are new, all the you know, all the all the experiences are new, the towns are new, all all that's new. Your hardest year is your second and third year where you realise this is now my career and mm. um and I've got to go through all the same hardships that I did last year. I've got to prove myself again. And again and again and again. It's a Groundhog Day. Uh, yeah, it is. You're and, already down uh, the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're you're only you're only the flavor of the month when you when you're doing well. You know, like uh, it really is like that. And it doesn't take too long for them to turn on you either. It doesn't. It does because there's just so much pressure from below you. So you know, you're a bad couple of weeks, a bad month away from being out of any team you play on. So um, you know, there's always that, always that pressure coming from behind you. Um, but once you get your head around that, you become okay with it. It's, it's. You know, I don't want to use the word institutionalized, but there's a bit of that. Yeah. You know, you kind of get you, you, you kind of get used to being out in the sun. <laughs> you know, you kind of get used to the pressure. You kind of get used to the, you know, the the limelight, and you kind of get used to the ups and downs and the failures and the and the successes. And you know, baseball's you know it, it gets thrown around a lot that you've got to be used to failure. You know, seven out of ten times you don't get a hit, you're still an all star. Um, you know, there's not too many. Sports. I mean, uh, you know, everybody's um, rattling on about, um, you know, how bad Trent Cochin is at kicking at goal 40 metres out in front, but, um, you know, and, and AFL kicking conversions, but still, you know, he's still doing that successfully more times um, than a baseball player is getting a base hit. You know, yeah. three out of 10 times, you're failing 70% of the time and you're still good. You've got to deal with an awful lot of failure, you know. Um, yeah, there's not too many basketballers. Maybe Shaq. Shaq. <laughs> yeah, thirty percent free throws and DeAndre on, Jordan on, on the team. You know? Yep. I was going to say, given all that grind and the and the mental drain that it must have doing that year after year and and chasing that unicorn, when you finally get around to your you know getting your first start in the majors, when you run out on the field, is it is it excitement? Is it nerves? Or is it relief because you're like I'm now one of the Aussies that have made it to the top, or I've made it to the top. Like no one can take that achievement away. I'm here. Certainly, um, oh, it's a bit of all that. <laughs> um, uh, certainly, when when uh, when you first get called up, everything that you went through all of a sudden instantly makes sense. In, I mean, overnight. So all those you know early mornings that you got up when you're a teenager and went for a run before school all those you know those extra rounds of bp that you took all the you know extra extra hardships that you went through all the all the relationships that you had to um you know put on the on the on the sideline while you chased your own personal you know goals and dreams um you know all those things that you did um along the journey all of a sudden instantly overnight go Right. Well, that was all. That all makes sense now. That that all worked. Um, that was all worth it. Um, but then you actually put your uniform on and get out on the field for the first time, and um, you know it's a mixture of adrenaline, um, terror, fear, um, <laughs> excitement. Um, 
you know, expectation, you know, all those things. Um, when I made my debut, I still probably, from time to time, think back to the to the time. Um, but um, we were playing in Chicago, so Kansas City um, had called me up from Double A, so I actually skipped straight over over Triple A and went straight straight into the big leagues, which was uh, I had played a little bit of time in in Triple A the season before, but I, I went straight from Double A to the big leagues when um, uh, our star first baseman Mike Sweeney uh, injured his back. Um, our manager at the time was a guy by the name of Frank White. Now he was a you know really exceptional um, and very famous Kansas City Royals second baseman. And um, anyway, he uh, he called me into the office, and he, um, you know, he said, oh, "You know, Justin, t- take a seat." And I thought I was in trouble. You know, I was having a really good good year, but um, you know, you never really want to get called into the manager's office. You just want him to stay on his area, and you to stay in your area. And at the end of the year, when the numbers are right and the championships in the bank, you, then you then you're going to have a beer, right? But until then, you just want to you just want to make sure you're on the right side of him. Anyway, so he called me in the office, and he um, and he said, "Look, Justin." Um, you know, looks like your uh, hard work's paid off. The Royals have decided to make a move, and um, um, and you're going to the big leagues tomorrow. And um, and my f- mouth was wide open. I was just like, "How good is this?" And he said, um, "Are you a beer drinker?" And I said, uh, "Frank, I'm Australian." Um, <laughs> and he goes, "Well, my manager, when he called me up, did this, and I want to do this with you." He opened his little bar fridge and pulled out two beers, and he cracked the beer and goes, "Congratulations, you're you're a big leaguer, right?" And we sat and had a beer, and Frank talked about for about you know half an hour, just talked nonstop big league stories about when he got called up and things that he did and first times with this, that, and everything else. It was like one of the most coolest experiences. Was it the Fosters? It wasn't a Fosters, it was a cause. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> nice. whatever it is, please don't be a Bud Light. But, uh, I know we've probably got to wrap this up soon before the actual show. Relatively soon. I just want to ask you a couple more questions, though. One specifically, I'm a big movie guy, right? And I love my baseball movies. Is there any movies, any baseball movies specifically that kind of encapsulates what it is to be a baseballer, specifically in the, in the minor leagues as well? Is there any movies out there that you can really relate to from a, a playing sense? Oh yeah, you know you guys know what I'm going to say next to in. I think it might be the same as Trav Blackley. <laughs> Bull Durham. Yeah, yeah, same as Trav. Yeah, <laughs> they all say it. They all say it. Yeah, yeah not the uh, not the illicit uh, sex part of the movie. Um, <laughs> sure, <laughs> but but most certainly the journey and, and you know and the like we all became at one time or another. Um, became journeyman like uh, Trav. Trav's just as big of a testament to that as as I am. You know, we um, you know we we bounced along through the minor leagues for years and years and years, and you, you, we rode all those buses. We um, we went through the, all those hardships. We we met all those nuke nalushes <laughs> out there that, um, that that were first round picks who who got a you know who got a, a golden pathway all to, all the way to the big leagues. So yeah, it's it's. It's pretty good. It's a great watch, and um, yeah, it's Kevin Costner at his best in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a baseball movie. That um, yeah, it's pretty close to close to reality. So then, once you finished off your career in the states, you came back and played for the Aces. What did you find the difference uh, about the the way that the professionality between the two um, the countries and the way they went about their baseball? Yeah, it's just a bigger bigger ball uh, bigger ball game over there. There's just so much more. Um, Opportunity for you know, bigger facilities, more, more, better levels of um, sort of everything, equipment, you know, um, 
uniforms, every, everything that you can think about. And it's not really a full-time gig over here either. No, it's not. You know, and and and, and probably um, uh, the r- fact that we have a national competition again um, is is starting to create the kind of buzz and the kind of um, excitement and interest in the sport that we have been lacking for for a number of years between between leagues. Um, to date, Major League Baseball's pumped in. Um, an incredible amount of money into this country. It's about it's it's up there about thirty two million dollars in the last five years, um, and they're starting to see you know they're starting to reap their rewards from that. There's there's more people watching um, MLB on TV than than ever before. There's more people buying MLB merchandise and going you know flying to flying to LA and going and seeing a, a Dodgers game um, than, than ever before. And and so the investment's starting to pay off from a from a commercial standpoint, but we're also starting to see it pay off from a, a player pathway, which is just as important to them. You know, seeing the game grow, seeing more participants um, actually start playing baseball is one of the main goals of them being in, in, having any investment into Australia. So at the end of the last um, league, um, there was a significant drop-off um, in participation. And um, at the heyday of the last league, we had about... Uh, touch above 50,000 full active playing members in Australia recognising themselves as baseball players. Um, In the middle of the the hiatus, in the middle of the 2000s, even after we won a silver medal in in the Athens Olympics in 2004, um, our participation was down around 34,000 nationally. Now we're almost back at 50,000. So it's, it's obvious um, that the league plays a um, consistent and significant role in the growth of participation in Australia. So we have to look after it. We have to keep it. We have to keep investing in it um, because, you know, professional baseball, Major League Baseball is not just about um, playing it. It's about watching it. It's about wearing it. It's about consuming it. It's about being part of it. It's about living it. And you can do that in a whole range of different ways other than playing um, there's just as much, um, you know, uh, value um, and, and honour in being a, uh, a baseball fan that just loves being part of a community and seeing seeing their favourite sport get played at the top level than it is actually going out there and, and rolling on the jersey and having a crack yourself. As GM of the Aces now, and, and uh, you know, I'm not sure whether or not you've got anything um, that particularly. Uh, you want to leave as, as a legacy in that position and things like that. But um, this this is probably dialing back a couple of years ago where I read an article where Dave Warner, the Australian cricket player, um, apparently had uh, been tapped on the shoulder to maybe just do a couple um, of, of, of tests with uh, uh, a major league organisation. Is that a, a, a reality in any sense to say trying to do some talent ID poaching of the cricket participation ranks in juniors is that possible? Is it possible to translate those sorts of skills, whether it be from a batting perspective or and the, the million dollar arm perspective from the Indies? Yeah. Is that a, a realistic talent poaching um, pool? Yeah, well, I think it happens already. Um, you know, uh, many many cricketers will start playing um, baseball in the winter to strengthen their arm. Um, you know, fielding wise. Um, you know, I got taught to field in cricket as a as a junior by dropping to a knee and kind of blocking it in the outfield. Now, um, you just don't see 
that in cricket at all anymore. You know, they're they're getting down, they're fielding it with two hands, they're getting low to the ground, they're fielding it like baseball players, and they're throwing the ball around like baseball players, and they train with baseball equipment. Like they're out there, you know. Go next time you're at a they test match. Too, yeah. yeah, next time you next time you're watching cricket, go watch. Point out. Um, try to see how many how many uh, baseball gloves you see out on the field pre 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 match. Um, they're also starting to look look like baseball as well. Like 2020, mm, exactly. That's baseball, fellas. Like, yes, yeah, so, real. Like all the fireworks and the you know the 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 fanfare in between uh, overs and all the all the stuff. They've that's baseball. You know, if you're if and that's probably the best thing that could have happened to baseball in Australia yeah. is 2020 cricket. If you like playing 2020 cricket, like that's like. Playing baseball on Valium, you know, you should get on. You should get on to playing baseball. If you like twenty twenty, let's just pick up a round bat right now. You're gonna have a way better time. Saying that, I like the fact I've been to a, a lot of ABL games over the last couple of years, and I see regularly in the dugout players playing cricket in the dugout with their with their bats and they, they would do the overarm bowl and they just we want the start other way blocking around. it. We want the other way around. We want cricketers. still good though. Yeah, I know, but we got all these cricketers. It's like let's transition them into into baseball. We're we're pro American sports, Chris. Right? This is a good point. Uh, a couple more questions before we let you go. What do you think the ABL needs to do to become a really strong destination for overseas players to want to actually come over and play with us? Yeah, well, I think it's getting there now. Um, you know, we are seeing players. We're seeing players. Diddy Gregorius pushing up to the big leagues. He played for Canberra a couple of years ago. Mm. You know, um, so we, we've, there's there's obvious signs that the the players that are coming out to play in the, this league and hone their skills in this league um, is a big draw card. So uh, I think it's happening now. It will continue. We just need to get more homegrown players um, coming back from their seasons in the states. Yeah. And continuing to develop in our league, that's really, really important. Um, it's going to strengthen our national team. Um, it's going to create, you know, the top of the pathway that we want to inspire all those next generation of kids uh, to come through and look up to. Um, so it is really important that we get a lot more of our homegrown players, you know, committing to the league at the end. Uh, one final one was that uh, with the relationship that the Major League Baseball has with the ABL, is there any? Any thought that it may end up being like a, a another step down from how you've got the Triple A, Double A, that they might actually align franchises with uh, teams out here or around the world? Yeah, look, I'd love that to happen. Um, and and again, we're starting to see a little bit of it now. Um, like some of the teams are starting to get, um, you know, sort of a sisterhood sort of yeah. partnership with with. Um, with 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 our teams out here, um, I mean, it would be great if some of those teams started to invest a little bit more heavily into this as a legit development pathway, um, and take a bit more active role. At the moment, they're just sending players, but I'd love to see coaches and you know training staff and more scouts and maybe even an in, you know a bit more investment into actually capital upgrades at the fields and and so forth. I'd like to see. You know, some of these teams actually start to become almost like academies, like you see in the soccer. Similarly, I was just yeah. going to say how Man City yeah. have uh, got that deal with uh, Melbourne City, New York yeah. FC. Now yeah. they've got that academy system, yeah, yeah, and upgrade facilities, and it benefits everyone. Yeah, that's yeah. right, and and it will benefit them. And it's, you know, they're sending players 
you know, I played all over the all over South America in the winter um, months or the US winter months. You know, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Panama, Mexico. Um, you know, there's leagues all over those places, and you can go there. Um, but it's not English speaking. Um, a lot of those places are, are pretty raw. Um, here you can come to a uh, you know a summer months in an English speaking place, a first first world place where it's safe. Um, your players you know get to play in a really good competition. You know it's not every day, so you're not wearing them out. There's a lot of advantages, and just actually just being here as a destination is just hundred times better than going to um, you know Caracas. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us on the Flag Fights today, mate. Really appreciate it, and best of luck for the season as well. I know me and Lockie will be down Absolutely. as much as we can to the Aces games. We love it. So best of luck, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, fellas. I had a great time.